Well, good morning, everyone. How's everybody feeling with one less hour of sleep? It's amazing how that messes our bodies up, doesn't it? As we begin this morning, I want to speak to one of the challenges that we face when we look at Paul's letter to the Corinthians. We've actually encountered it several times in chapter 7 already. And so I want to speak to this so that we can have some real clarity as we continue to move on. If you would go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If you remember chapter 7 verse 1, we talked about how this verse served as a transition in Paul's letter. Because now is where he begins to speak to specific issues that were uh, posed to him by members of the Corinthian church. Which is why he says, now concerning the things which you wrote. And so Paul begins to speak to these things. And when he does so, he does very clearly and, and with some authority, if you'll look at verse 2, as he speaks to the sanctity of marriage, he says, But because of immoralities, let each man have his own wife. Let each man, woman have her own husband. So very clear that Paul is speaking uh, with some authority and some clarity of, of the issues that they brought forth to him. But then, in verse 6, he says, But this I say, by way of concession not of command. So now we see that Paul is addressing an issue based on his own personal experience. And his concession is that being single might actually be a better option than being married. And he says that it's not a command because he doesn't want to have people say, well, this is what Paul said, so now if you're not single, then you're not in God's will. And that's not what Paul wants them to understand at all. He's helping them appreciate the value of being single in a culture that would have considered it to be a curse, quite literally. And so he is raising the value of being single to be of equal value to the gift of being married. They're both gifts of God. Both have value and purpose. And from Paul's perspective, being single has some clear advantages. And then in verse 10, he goes from the concession back to the command. He says, but to the married I give instruction, not I, but the Lord. So here he's clear that I am now going to reinforce a commandment already given to us by the Lord. And you remember when we talked about this passage, that command was this one. What God has joined together, let no man separate. Which is why he then, in verse 12, says, But to the rest I say, not the Lord. And what he's meaning here is, I'm going to take that command, and I'm going to apply it to a specific situation in the Corinthian church. Let no one separate what God has joined together. Therefore, if you're married to an unbelieving spouse, do not abandon them. Let, let God protect the sanctity of that marriage that he created because what he's joined together let no one separate and then in verse 25 which is where we will begin our passage this morning he goes back and says now concerning virgins I have no command of the Lord but I give an opinion <laughs> now normally when somebody makes a statement like that and they give an opinion basically it gives you the option to to either take their advice or not right so is that what we're supposed to do with this statement made by Paul? We could take it or we could leave it? See, this is the challenge of the letter. As we move from these non-commands and these concessions and these opinions 
given to us by Paul. And so how do we treat those in view of the rest of Scripture? Well, I think it's a real important thing to remember that unlike my opinion or your opinion, Paul's opinion was inspired by God and is included in the authoritative word of God. It's in Scripture. So instead of providing kind of this take-it-or-leave-it piece of advice, Paul's opinion and his answer to these questions is authoritative. And it's authoritative for all believers at all times. Now, his instruction was specific to a certain issue, but it's not confined to only that issue with those people at that time. Otherwise, we're tempted to look at Scripture and say, well, this doesn't really apply to me, so I'll just kind of skip right past that one and, and move on to the next topic. Well, that's what I call selective application. And it's a very dangerous thing for us to take that ability upon ourselves and pick and choose what parts of Scripture we think might apply to us. Instead, I would like to offer a different suggestion based on 2 Timothy 3.16, which says that all Scripture is inspired by God. It is God-breathed and therefore profitable for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, for training in righteousness. It's all of Scripture. And so even though Paul is speaking to a specific people at a specific time, the instruction he gives, listen to this, the instruction he gives is always based on timeless biblical principles. So our goal is to look at that instruction and understand what that biblical principle is and then consider how that applies to our life as well. You see, that's the challenge, is, is to learn what those biblical principles are and then apply that truth to our lives. So this morning, as we look at this passage this morning, I want us to look at what Paul's instruction is to the Corinthian church. But at the same time, I want us to appreciate the value of the biblical principles that that instruction is based on and consider how that does, in fact, apply to our life, that it is relevant to our situation, and therefore we need to pay attention. So before we do that together, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we understand that your word is God-breathed, that it is profitable for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, for training in righteousness. Every word on every page was inspired by your spirit and intended for a good purpose in our lives. And we understand that, that God-honoring decisions are always based on timeless biblical principles and very often those biblical principles have the end in view it, it's decisions based on an eternal perspective so this morning will you help us see how paul takes the very heart of that truth applies it to the corinthians and see how that it directly applies to us as well we want to make god-honoring decisions decisions that glorify you that are based not on the, the, the transient nature of this world that is here and then gone, but is based on the world to come, which exists for all eternity. We pray this in your name. Amen.
So, as I mentioned, here's how we're going to do this. We're going to look through this section of Paul's letter, beginning in verse 25, and we're going to see how Paul gives instruction to the Corinthians, and then we're going to make sure we appreciate the importance of the biblical principle that that advice is built on. So, verse 25, if you'll read along with me. It says, Now concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord, but I give an opinion as one who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. I think that this is good in view of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you should marry, you, sh- you have not sinned. And if a virgin should marry, she has not sinned. Yet such will have trouble in this life, and I'm trying to spare you. Now, right off the bat, we have a difficulty because Paul uses a word that is a distraction to us, okay? It's the word virgin. And let me simplify it for you. He's talking about someone who has never been married. That's what that term is intended to describe. And more specifically, it's someone who has never been married, but they are betrothed. They are engaged to be married. The reason we know that is because in verse 27, it says, are you bound to a wife? And then it goes on in verse 28 and says, but if you should marry. So there is this binding agreement before marriage takes place. And so I want to talk about that. Betrothal in their context is very different than engagement in ours. Okay? So for them, betrothal, much like engagement, took place about a year before the marriage itself, before that wedding ceremony. But there was a binding contract that brought those two people together as that marriage was arranged typically by the father. And they went into a a contract with one another to say these two people, this man and this woman, are engaged to be married. and, And they were considered to be married lawfully when they were in that period of betrothal. The reason we know that, there's a good example. Turn to Matthew chapter 1, verse 19. You'll remember this because this is the betrothal of Joseph and Mary, the mother of Jesus. Look at verse 19. It says, and Joseph, her husband. Now, Joseph and Mary have not been married yet. They have not gone through the marriage ceremony, but they were betrothed. And in that culture... They were considered to be husband and wife, even though they have not lived together or consummated that marriage. That ceremony was yet to come. They were preparing for that day, which is why he goes on to say, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, he desired to put her away secretly. Literally, put her away means to give her a certificate of divorce. Because in the eyes of that culture, they were considered to be married. It was a binding agreement between a man and a woman. So back to our passage in verse 27, Paul says, if you are bound, and he's talking about this binding contract of betrothal. He says, if you are in that relationship, don't seek to be released. But if you're not, don't necessarily seek to be married. And he gives that advice within a specific context. Look at verse 26. He says, in view of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. We don't have a whole lot more than that 
in Paul's letter. There's a couple of things as we go through that we'll encounter. What does he mean by this present distress? Well, actually, there's a lot of extra biblical history that informs this passage because we know from facts that there are certain things that were happening during this time in our history. One of the things is, is that by the time Paul writes this letter to the Corinthians, they are in about year 10, year 10 of a very severe famine. Not only that, there had been some flooding in the Nile, which is like uh, the garden patch for that part of the world. And and so on top of the famine, there was a, a food shortage that was taking place in Corinth. We know from history that there, were, uh, there was overpricing and, and people taking advantage of the situation and therefore rioting in the cities. In addition to that, we know that there was outbreaks of sickness and death. This is something that Paul actually speaks to later in this letter, likely related to this shortage of food and things that were going on during this time. And what I just described to you would have affected everybody in Corinth at the time. It was part of the distress. But there was a particular issue that would have impacted the Corinthians, uh, the Christians specifically, and it is this. The emperor of Rome at that time was a man by the name of Claudius. And one of the things Claudius did during his reign was build a temple in Corinth, requiring all citizens of Corinth to worship Roman gods. And so in addition to the other distress that was affecting everybody, the Corinthians faced the reality of persecution for perhaps the first time in their life. Because if they weren't willing to comply, then life would not be good for them. So this present distress is connected to the issue of the the famine, the, the, the social unrest, the disease and persecution. And with that, Now, can you understand a little bit more why Paul might say, in view of this distress, that's a big deal, remain as you are. Remain as you are. And then he goes on to explain in verse 28, but if you should marry, you're not sinning. But what does he say? You'll have trouble, and I'm trying to spare you. And then in verse 29, he gives the biblical basis for his advice. Let's look at that, verse 29. But this I say to you, brethren, the time has been shortened so that from now on those who have wives should be as though they had none, those who weep as though they did not weep, and those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice, and those who buy as though they did not possess, and those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it, for the form of this world is passing away. There it is. That's the timeless biblical truth. It's the same thing that John says. You don't need to turn there, but just listen to 1 John chapter 1, verse 17. It says something very similar. He says, and this world is passing away, and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. The biblical truth is that this world is passing away, but those who abide in Christ live forever eternally the point being don't make decisions on the temporal make decisions in view of the eternal so when you look at marriage know that it's temporary it's reserved for this world's 
alone. When you think about sadness and the difficulties of the distress that you're in, know that there's a day coming when there is no more mourning, no sorrow, no pain. And if you rejoice, know that that rejoicing pales in comparison to the glory that is yet to be revealed. And until then, we've all got to work to make ends meet in this world. But know this, this world is not our home. And nothing we possess, this side of heaven, has any value in the world yet to come. So don't be overwhelmed by the circumstances around you. Don't be pressured by the culture in the decisions you make. Look at those decisions in view of eternity. Now let's look at verse 32. Paul says, but I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife and his interests are divided. And the woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord and she may be holy both in body and spirit. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. When Paul is speaking in this section, he is in no way belittling marriage. In fact, he's elevating the responsibility within a marriage relationship from both the husband and the wife. As Paul's already taught us earlier in chapter 7, marriage is a lifetime commitment of self-sacrificing love. And there's an important responsibility that husband and wife have towards one another in that relationship. I think what Paul is saying is echoed throughout Scripture, and one of the places I want us to turn is 1 Peter. So if you would, turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. Because here's where I believe this letter from Peter articulates the very heart of what Paul is trying to say, and I want you to see it from a different perspective. Look at verse 7 to begin with, chapter 3, verse 7 of 1 Peter. Says you husbands, this is, let me say before we read the, the verse, this is the responsibility that Paul is referring to in his letter to the Corinthians, and it's this. You husbands, likewise, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with a weaker vessel, since she is a woman, and grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. We've talked about this before, and so let me clarify the importance of what this verse is communicating. When it speaks to the woman as a weaker vessel, it is not diminishing her value in any way. In fact, it is elevating it. And the illustration that I've used before is this idea of a piece of fine china. Something that is absolutely beautiful and, and, and yet delicate. And so you don't want to take that fine piece of china and put it in there with your everyday dishes where it gets banged around and hit around and, and chipped and broken. No. This is not any piece of dish that you have. You, you want to treat this special. You set it apart. You shine a light on it. You protect it. And husbands, that's your role towards your wife. To protect. To nurture. To cherish. To such a degree that God says, if you aren't willing to treat your wife 
in an understanding way, loving and protecting and cherishing her, then don't bother spending time making requests because I'm not listening. You need to treat her well before you come before me. Honor her, and I honor you. In the same way, he speaks to the wives. Look at verse 1. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and, and respectful behavior. Both of these conditions are, are, are important responsibilities because it's saying, wives, even if your husband's not doing the right thing, it doesn't give you the ability to do the wrong thing. You need to treat them with the same honor and respect regardless of their behavior. Trusting that your faithfulness to what God's called you to is what he might use to change their heart. Do you see the weight of responsibility for both the husbands and wives? This is no small deal. And that's what Paul is trying to emphasize in his letter. When you enter into that marriage relationship, you are accepting a burden of responsibility that is very important in the eyes of God. In a marriage relationship, the husband and the wife must be concerned about the physical, the the spiritual, and the emotional well-being of the other. Because in a one-flesh relationship, what happens to one inevitably impacts the other. So in my relationship with Terry, in our marriage, if she is in a difficult place, I don't have the freedom to just carry on my merry way. Because of the commitment I've made to her before God, if she's hurting, I hurt with her. I enter into that with her. I walk with her. And in the same way, when I'm struggling with discouragement or doubt, which I can speak to, <laughs> Terry comes alongside me. She supports me. She encourages me. Because what happens to one directly impacts the other. Now, neither one of us is responsible for fixing the other. That's not the goal, men. Your job is not to fix your wife. Wives, your job is not to fix your husband. Your job is to enter in to carry the burden with them so that when they weep, you weep. When they rejoice, you rejoice. Paul says in Ephesians that that we are called to love our wives as we do our own body. And the reason I believe he says that is based on the fact that the one flesh relationship is of such significance that what impacts one inevitably impacts the other. It's inseparable. And that balance can be difficult. Just this past week, Terry and I had a conversation, and I kind of gave her this illustration. I said, sometimes I feel like I'm walking a tightrope across the Grand Canyon. And you know how they carry that big bar to balance themselves? On one end of that bar is family marriage and my responsibility to to love my wife and to care for my boys on the other side is ministry my desire to shepherd and love people especially in their difficult times 
And the weight of that bar can shift <laughs> from one side to the other at different seasons in life. And that's what I feel like sometimes. It's difficult to keep that balance, and that's precisely Paul's point. Paul is being honest about the facts. He's not belittling marriage, but he's emphasizing the magnitude of responsibility when trying to keep the balance. And because of that reality, Paul says that there are certain advantages to remaining single. Now, keep in mind that his advice is still being based on that biblical truth that this world is not our home and one day it all goes away. And so, marriage is temporary and doesn't continue after death. Therefore, the goal in life is not to be happily married. That's not the goal. Because both those who are single and those who are married must find their deepest needs being met in Christ alone. Regardless of what your relational status is, we share the same goal. Being single does not create a void in your life that Christ cannot fill. Whether single or married, our wholeness does not depend on another person. Do you hear that? Married and singles face that same challenge. And Paul is telling us, we are complete in Christ. Monica Norris has really helped me in gaining insight into this perspective. And a few weeks ago, I wrote an article in the back of the bulletin. I hope you read it because it was a ministry to me just to hear her heart and her perspective. Let me give you some of the things that she shared uh, with me during that time. She said, we need to remember <laughs> that being single is not equivalent to being unloved. That being single is not some purgatory that's preparing you for marriage someday. <laughs> Instead, being single, as is biblically true from this passage, is a gift of equal value to the gift of being married, and in some ways, even having some advantages. Because again, God never intended for any relationship to satisfy our heart in ways that should only be satisfied in him. Do you get that? That's the basis of Paul's instruction. Being single and understanding that truth right there is of tremendous value in the eyes of God. If nothing else, the life itself is a testimony of the sufficiency in Christ alone. So be holy and devoted to the Lord because you are complete in him. Now look at how he continues in verse 35 of our passage. He says, and this I say for your own benefit, not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote what is seemly and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. But if any man thinks that he is acting unbecomingly towards his virgin daughter, he should be, or virgin daughter, if she should be of full age, and if it must be so, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin, let her marry. But he who stands firm in his heart, being under no constraint, but has authority over his own will, and has decided this in his own heart, 
to keep his own virgin daughter, he will do well. So then, both he who gives his own virgin daughter in marriage does well, and he who does not give her in marriage will do even better. A wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. But in my opinion, she is happier if she remains as she is. I think that I also have the Spirit of God. Verse 35, Paul is clear. He says, look, I'm not trying to put a restraint on you. I'm not telling you what your decision needs to be. I'm only informing you on the basis upon which you should make your decision. So if you should decide to marry, you're not sinning because you can honor God in your marriage. And in the same way, if you are single, you can honor God as a single person. But just let grace guide your heart. And then in verse 36, there's a specific concern here. The concern is regarding a woman who has never been married, but it says that she is full of age. Now, remember, in this cultural context, the, the man is the one who arranges the, the wedding or the, the marriage partner for, the, uh, for his daughter. That's his responsibility. And so the concern is really from the perspective of a father whose daughter is getting older and she's approaching uh, the place where she's outside the window of being marryable. <laughs> now that sounds weird to us, right? But in that context, it was very true. There was a clear line of delineation upon which that person would no longer be valued in that context of marriage. And so the father's concerned. He's wanting to know, am I sinning if I don't make this happen and arrange this relationship? And Paul says, no. Not at all. The current concern is marriages. Because in that culture, a single person was considered to be uh, an outcast. Much like someone who was a widow. Which is why in verse 39, he addresses that topic right on the heels of the other one. And Paul wants to be clear. You may remember in the Old Testament the story of Ruth, right? You remember Ruth? And her husband and two sons go to the land of Moab, away from the land of which they were raised, because there was a famine and they went there for food. And during that time, her two daughters married. But shortly thereafter, Naomi, the mom, lost her husband and both her sons. And so now she's a widow and her two daughter-in-laws are widows. And you remember, she feels very hopeless about the condition that they're in. And it says that, she decides to go back to where she was born and raised in hopes that her relatives would supply food for her and that she could just make it and survive somehow. But her two daughter-in-laws needed to stay right where they were at among their own people because they wouldn't have a chance where she was going. In fact, she tells them, you need to find another husband because that's your only hope. You don't want to be like me. I'm too old to be married, is what she says. And so you get a sense in this story of Ruth of the picture of what Paul is referring to here. But Paul is not giving a command that tells the Christians in Corinth what they have to do. He's only giving them the biblical basis upon which they should make that decision. He's teaching them to make the decision based with an eternal view in mind. 
And for that reason, I believe we can look at this passage and the content of what it's speaking to and see how it does directly apply to us. Because here's the reality. We live in a certain culture with certain realities that we have to face. Just like Corinth, our culture places a high value on relationships, doesn't it? Just walk down a high school hallway, and you'll see all the people who find their identity and who they're dating or who they're hanging with, right? If you want to, you can go into the local bar and see the adults doing the very same thing. If you prefer more privacy, you can go about it through online dating, which, by the way, is a $2 billion, with a B, billion-dollar industry in America. Now, sometimes we disguise it in the church and we call it a singles ministry or a divorce group. But very often, it can be the very same thing. Not always. But let's just be honest. Just as Paul is being honest with the facts in his letter to the Corinthians. We have to be careful not to get caught in the worldly view that looks to find purpose and value in people or possessions. Did you hear that? We have to be careful not to get caught in the worldly view that finds purpose and value in people or possessions. Things that are reserved for this world alone. We have to be careful not to make marriage out to be something that God never designed it to be. We often talk about marriage being the need to find that perfect match, that soulmate, right? The one that completes me. And I just need you to know, from a biblical perspective, that is not a true statement. Jesus Christ is the only one who completes you. And if you look to your spouse to be that person, you will be miserable for the rest of your life, expecting them to become someone for you that God never designed them to be. In fact, we need to learn how we are both dependent upon Jesus to fulfill needs in our life that the other one can never, ever meet. And and so one of the things that I want to propose to you is this question. If you're married, here's the question. Are you more concerned about how you can love your spouse or how you expect your spouse to love you are you more concerned about how you can love your spouse or about how you expect your spouse to love you there's a christian book called uh talking about marriage relationship called his needs her needs i hate the title i think there's probably some good truths in the book but here's what bothers me i think even in christian circles sometimes we get into that discussion and what we end up doing is creating a list okay here's my needs And I'll know you love me when I check them off, you meeting them. And we do that with each other, and then we end up realizing that neither one of us can meet that expectation. We're looking in the wrong place. Instead, if we can decide together that our ultimate need is met in our relationship with Jesus Christ, then let's pursue that and let him knit our hearts together by his miraculous, divine hand. So that as we grow closer to him, 
we grow closer to each other. As we seek to serve the other, we see that he draws our hearts towards them. And that love deepens like nothing else can. So we need to ask ourselves, are we truly complete in Christ? And then allowing him to knit our hearts together as husband and wife. And if we are complete in Christ, here's the next question for those of you who are single. Are you living for Christ or just looking for love? It's an important question. But it tells you where your heart is. And as Monica has reminded us, let me remind you again, being single is not equivalent to being unloved. The Bible is very clear about the source of our love. Turn, if you will, to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 17. We're making decisions based on timeless biblical truths. And here's one we all need to take to heart. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 17. It says this. Start at verse 16. And he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And that you being rooted and grounded in love, his love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. And to know the love of Christ which surpasses all knowledge. That you might be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now let me just stop there for a second. If you have been filled up with all the fullness of God, is there anything in your life that is not being met by Him? Absolutely not. You're complete in Him. Look at how it continues. Now to Him, who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly beyond anything you can ask or think according to the power that works within us, to Him be the glory in the church, and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. That's where you need to base what you believe to be true and what it says in God's Word. Now, that takes care of marriage and singles, but I want to bunch us all into this last category because this one applies to all of us. As I said, we need to be careful not to uh, get caught in the trap of finding purpose and value in people and possessions. Things that are reserved from this world alone. Now, you don't need to turn there, but you'll recognize this passage. It's in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, if you want to look it up later. This is Jesus speaking, okay? So listen to what he has to say. He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. That one applies to all of us. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Here's the question for us. How are we investing our life? And let me get us to answer that question in two ways. Okay? Here's the first way. Go look at your calendar. How do you invest your time? Are you seeking the good life <laughs> or God's life for you? As you look at your calendar, do you see time invested in people who need encouragement? People that you have to enter into with them to walk through difficult circumstances. 
look at your calendar and determine if it centers around you or around others. It'll help you answer the question of where you've invested your life and whether it's a worldly perspective or an eternal view. So your calendar is the first place. Here's the second place. Your budget. Your pocketbook. If you want to know what matters most to you, look how you spend your money. Are you investing in things that preserve and protect you for this world? Or are you leveraging so that you live simply in order to give maximally the things that further the kingdom of God and have eternal impact? So look at your calendar and look at your pocketbook because we could probably answer that question in and of ourselves real easy. Oh, well, I'm, I'm kingdom-minded and yeah, we are really into things that advance the kingdom of God. Okay, show me your calendar. Show me your checkbook. And then let's see if they match what you think is true. But you're not going to show me either one of them. <laughs> you're going to look at them yourself with a sincere heart for a loving and gracious God, and you're going to ask him. Let me encourage you to ask him. Lord, teach me how to invest my life for things that last for eternity. Help me to find my purpose and value in my relationship with you and not within people, whether that people is my spouse or my friends or people around me. Help me to believe and understand that I am complete totally sufficient in you. And just begin to consistently bring yourself back to the place where your decisions are being made on timeless biblical principles. We just saw in our passage this morning where there was a specific context to a specific people, but there was a timeless biblical principle that this world is passing away and that our life needs to be based on things that live for eternity. And that applies to all of us. So just ask the Lord how you can live that out in your life right now, in whatever circumstance you may be in. Let's pray together. Father, I am so grateful for the reminder this morning that every word in this book is inspired by you and profitable for our life. Sometimes it teaches us, sometimes it rebukes us, sometimes it corrects us but it always trains us to grow in righteousness so that we see life from your perspective, that we value things that are important to you, that we align our heart and our will to yours. So, Father, teach us to live this life making God-honoring decisions based on timeless biblical principles that have ultimately an eternal impact for your glory and your kingdom forever. That's our prayer. We pray this in your name.